guys. I'm Ray Belli, and this is Words for Grant, a podcast that looks at how words change over time. If you value this show as a free educational resource and you'd like to show your support, you can do so via Patreon. Patreon is a crowdfunding service that allows independent creators to get their work out into the world. If you donate as little as $1 a month, that's less than what you'd pay for a bad cup of coffee, you'll gain access to members-only episodes. If all goes to plan, I'll be posting a new one next week. But in addition to the bonus episodes, you also get to walk away with the satisfaction of knowing that you are directly helping to sustain the output of this show. Based on the current monthly listenership, if everyone contributed just a dollar a month, that would give me more than enough support to literally just focus on producing this show. And that would be awesome. So, if you are so inclined, go to patreon.com slash wordsforgranted to find out more. You can also find a link to my Patreon on my website, wordsforgranted.com. Thanks to Matthew and Mariana for their recent contributions. Before we get started, I'd like to correct two minor errors that I made in previous episodes. The first correction goes back to the episode on filibuster. In it, I said that the record for the longest filibuster speech was held by a politician named J. Storm Thurmond. It is in fact held by a politician named J. Strom Thurmond. You can probably blame that one on autocorrect. Thanks to Max for pointing it out to me. The second correction goes back to last week's episode on ethnic suffixes. I said that ease-derived ethnicities, such as Chinese or Japanese, were uncountable when used as nouns. What I meant to say is that you can't determine whether terms like Chinese or Japanese are singular or plural without any additional qualifiers because their singular and plural forms are exactly the same. However, that doesn't mean that you can't count them. In the episode itself, I actually counted one Chinese, two Chinese, 2,000 Chinese, and so on. The technical category of uncountable nouns includes things such as water or salt, which, grammatically speaking, cannot be numerically counted. When you ask someone how much water or salt they have, they wouldn't say six waters or nine salts. Water and salt need to be counted in terms of measuring systems, such as, say, gallons or pounds. Even if you have three bottles of water and someone says, can you pass me two waters? Two waters here is actually short for two bottles of water. The number two doesn't refer to the plurality of the water itself. Regardless of how much water you have, you always refer to it as water. Thanks to Tim for being an attentive listener and pointing this one out to me. Okay, now that I've set my track record straight for now, let's get on to today's episode, the final episode in our politically-themed miniseries. If I were to ask you to make a list of history's top five cruelest tyrants, who would make that list? Maybe Adolf Hitler? Saddam Hussein? Attila the Hun? Maybe your husband, wife, parents, or in-laws? Just kidding. I hope for your own sakes that you all have happy and functional domestic lives. 
But in the case that you have an unhappy or dysfunctional domestic life because someone abuses his or her power within your family, then that person is indeed a tyrant. Perhaps not on the scale of Hitler, but according to the most general sense of the word, a tyrant is defined as anyone in a position of authority who exercises his or her power unfairly. Now, the people in the highest position of authority over the greatest number of people are politicians. So the notion of tyranny is most often associated with politics. It should come as no surprise, then, that the etymology of tyrant is steeped in political history, particularly the political history of ancient Greece. Ancient Greece had a fair share of cruel tyrants, but it also had a handful of good ones. This may seem oxymoronic, and in the modern sense of the word, it is. But when it first appeared in the Greek written record in the 7th century BCE, tyrant, or tyrannos in ancient Greek, didn't mean cruel ruler. It didn't even have a negative connotation. It meant political usurper, which in the historical context of ancient Greece, more specifically meant a ruler who gains political power illegitimately, as opposed to a ruler who gains political power legitimately through an election or a monarchical succession. Now, this definition seems like it would come with a negative connotation, but imagine this. Your country, or if you're in ancient Greece, your city-state, is ruled by a total jerk of a leader who's only in a position of power because he inherited the throne from his father. Then one day, some guy named Joe comes along, dethrones this jerk of a leader, installs himself as ruler, and then suddenly fixes all the problems that previously were afflicting your city-state. Sure, Joe broke the rules, and Joe isn't part of the noble bloodline, but now, thanks to Joe, your city-state is better off than it was before. On top of that, Joe is a pretty nice guy. So, even though Joe is a usurper, everybody loves him. As it turns out, the early Greek tyrants were men just like Joe. But then Joe had a couple of kids who ruined his family's reputation forever. We'll talk more about the rise and fall of Greek tyranny in more concrete terms in a few minutes. But first, I want to cover the etymology of the word tyrant. Unlike much of the Greek lexicon, the origins of tyrant cannot be traced back to a Proto-Indo-European root word. For those of you who may not know, Proto-Indo-European is the ancestral mother tongue of major languages such as Latin, Greek, Sanskrit, Persian, and Russian, among many others. Collectively, these languages are classified as Indo-European. Tyrant is believed to be a loan word from Lydian, a language once spoken in Western Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Lydian is, in fact, an Indo-European language, albeit a dead one, but that doesn't mean that tyrant is necessarily of Indo-European origins. It's very probable that the Lydians borrowed the word into their own language from a foreign source. Many linguists believe that tyrant is cognate with the Etruscan word turon, meaning mistress or lady. Etruscan was a language once spoken in central Italy, and it is undoubtedly un-Indo-European. 
if this etymology is correct, then it accounts for Tyrant's non-Indo-European origins, even if the Greeks obtained it from the Indo-European Lydian language. Here's why. The ancient Greek writer Herodotus claimed that the Etruscans came to Italy from Lydia, and in spite of much debate regarding this claim, ranging from antiquity to the 20th century, recent DNA tests have shown that Herodotus was probably right. So, if the Etruscans did in fact migrate to Italy from Lydia, then the pieces of our little puzzle fit together quite nicely. Assuming that the Etruscans and Lydians were, in fact, long-lost geographical neighbors, it's very feasible that the Lydians borrowed Turon from the Etruscans, which then over the years evolved into Turanos in Greek and eventually Tyrant in English. If you're wondering what the semantic connection between Turon and Tyrant is, recall that Turon meant mistress or lady and that the original sense of Tyrant basically meant usurper. If a mistress or lady interferes with the love life of a married man, she's basically a tyrant in this archaic sense of the word, which is to say, a usurper. However, as nicely as our little puzzle fits together, this etymological theory is not a cold, hard fact. The written records of both Etruscan and Lydian are so sparse that all of this falls into the realm of educated speculation. Anyway, I could spend hours theorizing about the possible meanings of words in dead languages, but let's instead move on to something a little more relevant to today's story, the so-called Age of Tyranny in ancient Greece. But I am not going to be the one having this discussion. I'm going to pass the floor over to Mr. Ryan Stitt, host of the History of Ancient Greece podcast. Quick aside. I've been listening to Ryan's podcast for about half a year now, and when Words for Granted was invited into the Humanities Podcasters Network, it put me in direct contact with Ryan because his podcast is part of that network as well. His show offers a wonderfully detailed survey of the ancient Greek world that covers politics, culture, and even literature and art. If you like ancient history, as I assume that some of you must, considering that you like this podcast— then I highly recommend subscribing to The History of Ancient Greece. Without further ado, Ryan Stitt on the rise and fall of Greek tyranny. I'll be back in a bit. Hello all, this is Ryan Stitt from The History of Ancient Greece podcast. And Ray has graciously asked me to come on today to tell you all about Greek tyranny as it evolved in the 7th and 6th centuries BC in the Aegean world. Well, the ancient Greeks colonized various parts of the Mediterranean during the two centuries from as far west as Spain and as far north and east as the Black Sea coast. And so thanks to this period of colonization, the Greeks were now in places that they had never been before. And in doing so, they soaked up all that they could learn from the much older and ancient civilizations in the Near East, especially those of the Phoenicians and the Egyptians, while they themselves heavily impacted the uncivilized West and the Northeast. The result was that the Greeks now had access to different food supplies and raw materials. Colonization had begun as an answer to land hunger problems that arose in many Greek polis during that time, as well as political unrest. It did something to reduce the first of these problems, but paradoxically, it actually increased the second. 
This was because the growth of Greek cities overseas led to an increase in trade. And since the old noble families of Greece did not engage in such trade, as their wealth was based on the land that their families had gained some point during the Dark Ages, a new middle class began to emerge of people whose wealth came from industry and commerce. And so as their wealth grew, so did their wish to share political power. The nobility would refuse and try to hold on for as long as they possibly could. But ultimately, this led to a new political phenomena arising in various parts of the Greek world in the 7th and 6th centuries BC, or as historians like to call it, the so-called age of Greek tyranny. Although these Greek tyrants were able to achieve tremendous power and wealth, they did not rule as a legitimate monarchos, or hereditary king, from where we get the English word monarchy. Tyrants had seized power, usually through a military coup, and ruled as an autocrat outside the institutions of the state. And so, tyranny in itself was not originally thought of as wicked. It was actually morally neutral, and did not imply that the monarch was bad or cruel. It just meant that he used illegitimate means to obtain his sole power. While background, aims, and means might differ amongst all the tyrants, the general result was the subordination of these local Greek nobilities to the power of one single man. Dozens of tyrants were able to grab power in their polis, but unfortunately only a few of those are known in any great detail. But still, we can see a general pattern in their rise and fall. At this point, since a leader of a Greek military had a lot of power, if he wanted to seize control of the government, he already had the backing of the hoplite soldiers. And so, tyrants were often members of the local elites who had distinguished themselves in service of their polis. And since they had such power, they typically used times of public discontent to seize power. Not all tyrants were from the top-ranked families, though. Some were nobles who felt marginalized within the ruling class. But once the tyrants had established themselves, some held on to power by hiring mercenary soldiers from outside the polis, as sort of like bodyguards. Such aid was sometimes supplied by a friendly tyrant of another polis. We often see that tyrants marry off their daughters or sons to daughters or sons of other tyrants in order to gain political alliances to keep their power as well. In justifying the seize of power, tyrants claim to be fulfilling the will of the people, saving their city from weak or wrong leaders, or putting an end to the vicious infighting that happened between the noble families. It was this vicious infighting that really had a predominant effect on the rise of tyranny. Rivalries amongst the nobles, though it was channeled to some extent into competition for offices and control within the aristocratic councils, was particularly nasty in the 7th and 6th centuries BC, as the struggle for power was waged amongst the genoi, or the lineage clans. Disputes often involved hot-headed young nobles and frequently erupted into bouts of violence and bloodshed. The Greeks called formal conflict between groups within the city-state stasis, which literally means taking a stand. Opposition of this sort was integral to the Greek political process of every period, but the stasis between noble factions in the Archaic period, which were these two centuries that we're speaking about, was much more frequently violent than at any other point afterwards and was highly disruptive to society. And because membership in a genos, the singular, was hereditary, this kind of civil war would keep flaring up for generations. And so the intervention of a strong man who could stop, or at least check, the feuds of the noble families, was welcomed by the people. This idea that the tyrants were viewed as champions of the demos, or the people, against the oppressive nature of the nobility, was reinforced by Aristotle in his work called The Politics. He says, 
A tyrant is installed in power from among the demos and the masses to oppose the nobles so that the demos may suffer no injustice from them. This is clear from the events of history. For almost all the tyrants have gained power from being demagogues, so to speak, having gained their trust by slandering the nobles. The seizure of power was often followed by violence against the rich, and presumably some of it was given to the poor to keep their support. And so, since the nobles no longer had a monopoly of the land, tyrants helped in spreading the wealth. In order to bolster credibility, tyrants did their best to uphold existing laws, customs, and religious practices. They often made laws to limit the power and privilege of the nobility, including sumptuary laws, which sought to curb their luxury and ostentatiousness. In order to maintain popularity, tyrants often engaged in public works projects designed to increase the prestige of their home cities, which led to urbanization and an increase in trade and commerce. People began to flock to the capital city of the polis where their tyrant lived, because that was where government, commerce, and industry were happening. And so the tyrants needed to increase their city's water supplies, so aqueducts, wells, fountains, and drainage systems were installed. A central place in the city called the Agora, better known in anglicized English as Agora, came about for political and religious purposes. At some point, it became a center for commerce. The tyrant also funded public buildings, such as courts and homes for public magistrates. He beautified them to impress the people. The most important, however, were temples. Previously, they were made out of wood, and so they deteriorated. But with this new wealth, they could afford to create them in something more lasting, that being marble stone. The tyrants also instituted new religious cults and festivals that celebrated and strengthened the unity of the polis. And they were patrons of the arts, competing to attract the best artists for architecture, sculpture, vase painting, poetry, songs, and music, all of which was monopolized by the nobility up until this point. Tyranny was a transitional phase in Greek society, but very important nonetheless, since it was needed to break the stalemate of the old nobility who were resisting the changes of the hoplite revolution and the growing merchant and economic classes. It thus laid the foundation for the middle class, hoplite-dominated constitutions that followed. Typically, once the tyranny was overthrown, the nobles who had been banished returned and reestablished an oligarchy. However, oligarchic rule was forever changed, because now the nobility were forced to include those who had wealth by merit, not just by birth, because if they hadn't, they knew that someone else down the road would try to make himself a tyrant once again. These people very quickly formed into factions once again, competing for dominance in the state. The hoplite class of independent farmers also now had a role in this new government, although it varied between each polis. Some had councils that included all of the hoplites, while others had ones that were very narrow in scope. Regardless, they now had somewhat of a say in the government, which was not the case before the tyrants came along. Despite all of the positive influences that tyrants had on their polis, they were almost universally vilified in retrospect. At first, the word tyranny had no real negative connotation as the common people viewed the first generations of tyrants in a more favorable light, because for the most part, they ruled mildly, because their position depended upon maintaining the goodwill of the people. And so, the founder of the dynasty most likely was loved when he died, but that love soon declined with his son, since they were not his achievements, 
and he was an heir to a non-existent political office. He typically was not as charismatic as his father either. A few did succeed on their own merits, but it was usually the second generation, and most tyrannies only lasted two generations, that showed all the hallmarks of the traditional wicked tyrant, leading to their overthrow because they were forced to resort to oppressive measures in order to repress opposition, which naturally exacerbated resentment against them. In this way, the word tyrant eventually came to mean a wicked and oppressive despot, in part because of the behavior of the second generation of rulers and the propaganda spread by the nobles, who naturally hated the men who had overthrown their regime and brought shame to the other ruling factions by forcing them to cede power to one of their own. Also, the common people were forced to face the grim reality of their own political impotence, and so both sides were troubled over their lack of being autonomous. And this is reflective in later political thought. Later Greeks perceived that dictatorial rule by one man, not accountable to the people, threatened the freedom of all. And any political regime had to be responsible for its actions in order to be legitimate. Because no human being can be trusted with complete power. Sparta had developed a reputation of being the enemy of tyranny and fought many times against it. They saw tyrants as being violent limiting free speech and political life, and being arrogant. Plato regarded tyranny as a terrible, evil thing, as the natural way of life for barbarians, not the Greeks. Now that we learned how the word tyrannos was used during archaic and classical Greece, I'm going to turn it back to Ray, and he'll tell you how this word evolved after the Greeks. Right. Well, that was more than I could ever dream of telling you about the history of ancient Greece. So I hope you enjoyed. And thanks again to Ryan for stepping in and contributing to today's episode. So by the end of the so-called Age of Tyranny, the Greek word tyrannos had already begun to acquire the negative connotation and general meaning with which we associate it today. But how did the word make its way into English? Well, in the wake of Roman contact with the Greeks, Tyrannos passed into Latin, and after Latin broke off into the Romance languages, Tyrannos passed into French as Tyran. I'm probably pronouncing that incorrectly because French pronunciation, let alone Old French pronunciation, is not exactly one of my strong points. So just bear with me here. Anyway, Tyran is first attested in Old French during the 12th century CE. Before long, the word acquired a T at the end of it as a way of conforming to the norms of contemporary French pronunciation, thus rendering the new word tyrant. The ending A-N-T was becoming a common way of forming past participles in French. By the 14th century, Tyrant had passed from French into English, today giving us the modern word tyrant. So, that's the end of our etymological analysis of tyrant from a historical point of view. Next, I'd like to look at the usage of the word tyrant, or more accurately, tyrannos, in a particular ancient Greek text. That Greek text is Oedipus the King, and many of you are probably familiar with it. 
However, I'm not going to be doing that here. I'll be posting my discussion of Oedipus as a members-only Patreon episode. Originally, it was part of this one, but it put the length at over 40 minutes, and when I listened back to the whole thing, I felt like I was being bombarded by an information overload. So, if you want to hear what I have to say about the linguistic significance of the word Turanos in Oedipus the King, then just head over to patreon.com wordsforgranted, contribute whatever you want, and it will be yours. I'll be posting it within the next few days. Alright, that's it for this one, guys. Don't forget to follow me on Facebook and Twitter. I'm on Facebook as Words for Granted, and my Twitter handle is at Words for Granted. If you love the show, please spread the word to your word nerd friends and leave a positive review on iTunes. I know it sounds petty, but those iTunes reviews really help with the growth of the show. Okay, I'll see you next time here at Words for Granted. I hope you have a great day.